0: So we're carrying on our series in Luke. Those of you who week by week uh, have been tracking with us know that we're heading into, uh, towards the end really, in terms of Jesus <coughs> heading for his death on the cross. But we have spent the last few weeks, couple of weeks, kind of in the temple where Jesus, as Johnny kind of <coughs> took us through the passage the other week, wasn't just kind of coming in on the edges and saying a few things because he knew he was going to die. Jesus was coming in and really taking over. Um, And Luke is telling the story from that perspective that Jesus is in the temple, everything happening in the build-up to his arrest is coming at the center of the life for the Jews, which is the temple. Um, If we wanted a title for this one, I think I'd keep with the kind of revolution thing. Um, and uh, because we're going to hear some more revolutionary things in the context of what's going to happen a few days from now in the story. So let's read Luke 20 verse 19, quite a well-known passage. I think a few people know the kind of phrase from here. Whether or not you know your Bibles, you will know one of these phrases. So last week Owen took us through the story ahead of this which is uh, important for the context because the religious rulers, uh, in verse 19, um, they're getting pretty upset because Jesus has told a story which they know is against them. It was the story of the vineyard and how in the end the owner sends his son to the vineyard, having sent lots of other people, uh, the owners kill the son and the vineyard goes to other people. Um, And the religious rulers are fairly bright. They don't always say clever things. But they've worked out Jesus is telling this against them. Here he is in the temple challenging their authority. And the drama is building. It's ever so important for us to understand this. So the scribes, the chief priests, sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. If, there was, if this was a film, dramatic music is playing, the tension is building, it probably, if it's a British film, would start raining at this point because that's how we convey drama. You know someone's going to get killed or something terrible's going to happen when the storm clouds comes in and it starts raining. For so they perceived that they, he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. See, Jesus is attracting the crowds. They're loving Jesus. So there's this tension between those who are in power and the people who are thinking, no one talks like Jesus. And he can come into the temple, and as we saw a couple of weeks ago, turn over tables, tell the authorities they're doing this all wrong. But the people were loving it, and the authorities are caught. So they watched him and they sent spies, more dramatic music, who pretended to be sincere. That they may catch him in something he said, so as deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. See, what's going on is the religious rulers are thinking, we can't touch him. If we touch him, then the people are going to turn against us. But if we can catch him out, if we can get him saying something against Rome, against the people in charge, we can go to the authorities and say, do you know what Jesus is doing? And we can get the authorities to do our dirty work that's what's going on here, we can't touch him, we want to, we want to grab him at this hour, we'd love to take him out of here and silence him, but we can't, but if we can get the authorities on our side, if we can get him saying something against them, then we can go to them and say, you need to sort Jesus out, because he's turning people against you, that's what they're hoping for, so they asked him, teacher, (coughs) you can just hear the insincerity, and the grovelling with this. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. You show no partiality. Truly teach the way of God. I bet those words were sticking in their throats. They didn't mean a word of it. Is it lawful for us to give tribute, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's the question. Do we pay taxes? We're God's people. The temple where you're in now, it's all about giving to God. God is the center of our identity as a nation. This Caesar is an oppressor. He's taken over our land. He's raised high taxes. What's more, there's even a tax which you pay as an expression of worship to him. That's particularly what they're talking about here. Not just everyday tax, but even the one that says we give honor to Caesar. Should we pay that? Because we're God's people. <clears throat> that's what they're asking him. Jesus though perceived their craftiness i bet he did and he said to them show me a denarius that was one of the that was the, the tribute coin the coin that you would pay in tribute whose likeness and inscription does it have they said caesar's he said to them and this is the phrase lots of people may have heard outside the context of this passage then render to caesar give to caesar the things that are caesar's and to god The things that are God's. It's got Caesar's head on it. Belongs to Caesar. Give it to him. And for God, give him what belongs to God. They were not able, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. So even they are amazed at how Jesus deals with this. And I'll explain why in a minute. And they're silenced. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to say are partly in awe at how Jesus deals with it, and they're knowing that he's just one more of the people, and they are stuck. Let's pray. Jesus, we never want to come to your word and stories about you lightly. We know we're kind of into holiday season and, uh, for some, and it all kind of feels a bit different, but Lord, we're here this morning because we want to hear you. We're here because we want to worship and tell you everything that you mean to us, but Lord, we know that you come to speak to us. We know your word is living. It's alive. It speaks. It's not just history from 2,000 years ago, it contains truth and those truths have changed many of us and we're saying to, us, to you again, we want to be changed this morning, we want your word to work, we want our hearts to be moulded, to be shaped by your words, not just what the world says to us. Lord, we want <coughs> not only to be kind of stimulated intellectually, understand this and what's going on a bit more, but Lord, I ask, please speak to us. Holy Spirit, thank you, you're present. You come to make Jesus known. You come to make his purposes known. May every one of us see afresh the power of what the gospel is. See afresh what you've called us to. Lord, in this world that desperately, desperately needs you, in this world which sometimes we feel that we've got anything to say, anything that people are going to listen to, I pray that we would know our faith renewed this morning and we would know strength and power in situations you've put us in to know what you've called us to do. Amen bit of background then before we get into the main thing that I want us to see from this passage. So the confrontation is going on. And uh, <coughs> as I said, the crowds are for Jesus. The religious authorities aren't. And one of the things which we could miss, um, because in, in terms of our culture working a bit differently than how it would in the East, is that religious rulers are losing face. They're feeling shame. They're feeling <coughs> not just simply... Challenged by Jesus or annoyed or jealous, something very, very powerful which people from other cultures will understand the whole thing of face, the whole thing of how people see them. People in cultures which are kind of more collective, less individualistic, are more worried about hang on, we represent a group of people, and if we're not doing that well, we're losing face. And it's not just an intellectual concept, it's something which is felt deeply just like we might feel angry about something when we're wronged or someone speaks against us. It's not just something which we think about, think, oh, that's not very nice. They've told lies about me to everybody at work. No, we feel cross about it. We feel angry, We want them to know that what they've done is wrong. It's the same in front of a huge crowd. Jesus catches them out. Jesus gives them a clever answer. They don't just stand there and think, hmm, we're going to have to come up with another question. They're feeling shame they're feeling Jesus has just completely humiliated us. We've got nothing to say in front of the people. The people can see that we've been humiliated. We haven't come out of this well. And that's what's running through this whole thing in the temple, is that the religious rulers, the people who should be the ones who are running the temple, the people should be looking to them, They're supposed to be the ones that know God, that know the way, that know how the law works, that know how to live. Suddenly, this man's pitched up from Nazareth, and they can't say anything against him. They are feeling shame. They are feeling, they're losing face. They're losing status. Their role is being challenged. Who they are, their very identity is at stake here. And so, as this story builds over the next few weeks, and we come up to where the religious rulers are wanting him killed... It's just helpful that we know, even though we don't feel it in the way they do, that we know that that's what's running through the story. It's not simply some debate as to who Jesus is and if he's got the right to say these things. It's not simply that they don't like him. They need to restore their status. They need to restore their honour. They need to say to the people, hang on, we're the religious rulers. We're the ones who know God. We're the ones who lead you in the way to go. This is just an imposter. So that's what's driving them. That's what they're feeling. Uh, in all of this. And as I said, as we read through the passage, (coughs) they're realizing that actually if they were to grab Jesus, if they were to come against him, they would lose even more face because the people are loving him. But if they can get Rome, if they can get the governor to do something about Jesus and to silence him, then they'll come out of this looking really, really good. So that's what is happening. (coughs) There's huge hypocrisy going on here. You see, Jesus' answer is kind of really clever, you know, he says, well, whatever belongs to God, give to him. What belongs to Caesar, give to him. The reason it's clever, and the Pharisees, religious rulers would have known this, is everything belongs to God. Everything's God's. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That includes authorities. That includes armies. That includes political powers. That includes palaces as well as trees and animals and mountains and people and tribes. Everything belongs to God. So Jesus says, give to God what's his. I think, Well, that's everything. But then Caesar belongs to God. Caesar may be walking around the world as if he owns it and saying, pay me a worship tax because I am God, I am Lord, worship me. But actually even Caesar, when he comes to God, is powerless and has nothing. Everything belongs to God. That's why they're marveling at Jesus' answer because he's caught them out. But it's an easy question. It's got, Jesus, it's got Caesar's head on it. Well, give it to Caesar then because ultimately everything in the world is from God. God's working through and reigning through and his rule and reign and power is over everything. He's, Caesar isn't the ultimate authority. And the reason why there's hypocrisy is the religious rulers knew this. They'd have known their history. They'd have known when their people, Israel, had been in foreign lands and they've had to pay taxes to foreign powers before. They had prophets arrive and tell them how to live. A lot of what Jeremiah was doing, talking to them about how do you live when you're God's chosen people with promises but you're being ruled by another ruler in another land they knew how to live they were just trying to catch Jesus out so there's huge hypocrisy here and there's huge hypocrisy because they were taxing people in the temple courts a few weeks back the story that Johnny took us through they were trying to get as much money as they could out of people now yeah it was to buy sacrifices and stuff but they were there a kind of righteous tax a lawful tax oh, you need to buy a dove to sacrifice. We'll give us money. Huge hypocrisy going on in this story. And imagine that Jesus could have quite righteously torn into them and be angry with them and thrown some more tables around. But he didn't. He just silenced them. Let them deal with their own shame. Show them for what they are. But just a sideline which just struck me as I was writing this this week. This needs to be a warning to us because we need to be aware of our own blindness when we don't like what God is doing when we're hurt by something or we're thinking why has God not worked this out in my life, why has this not happened why has this not turned out as I wanted it to, we need to be so so careful that when God does things that we don't get or we don't understand that we don't twist things to justify our anger because in the end that's what the religious rulers are doing here, this can't be the Messiah he's from Nazareth This can't be the Christ, the one that we've been promised because he's not challenging Caesar. He's not taking on Rome. He's come and challenged us. Why would God do that? There are foreign armies in our land. They're the ones that need to be told. And the hypocrisy, we can look and laugh. We can think, oh, this is terrible. Listening to them groveling, dripping. Oh, you're a wise and great teacher fawning over him. Total insincerity. Oh, they're they're the pantomime baddies in this story. Now we need to remember that they were the religious people who thought they knew how to follow God. And so it's worthwhile us just pausing and thinking we need to make sure when God is doing things that we don't understand, God is doing things we don't like or we're hurt, whether it's through other believers or in church life, watch out for blindness. Watch out for things that can suddenly mean we begin to twist and think, well, it wouldn't look like that, or God wouldn't do this, or they wouldn't behave like this. So that's some of the background, shame, losing face, hypocrisy, they knew what the answer is, everything belongs to God anyway. The cleverness is how Jesus put it and silenced them in front of everybody but he wasn't saying anything new here. The Bible runs through (coughs) that whole principle that it's God that puts kings in place. Proverbs talk about that, the Psalms talk about that and talks about God being the ultimate authority. Once again what's really going on here? as we're seeing again and again through these temple scenes and the stories that Jesus is telling, is that it's a, really it's a question about the nature of the kingdom and what kind of king Jesus is. The religious rulers would have been thinking, hang on, he's talking about scriptures and saying they apply to him. There are scriptures that talk about when the Messiah comes, the sick will be healed, and the poor will be set free and will be defended. And he's doing that. He doesn't look like the one we thought he would, and he's not challenging Rome but he's doing some of the things that the Messiah would. And so, again, even though they're trying to catch him out, what's behind all of this, again, is the tension of this kingdom isn't looking like we thought it would. See, the Jews were expecting a king like David, a king that would come with a throne and with an army and overthrow all their enemies. And Jesus doesn't look like that, but he's from the line of David. He's descended from David, but but surely he can't be the one because he's not a king like David. So as well as trying to trap him and silence him and get rid of him, they also want to know what kind of king are you? And actually, this is a good question. If we were living at that time, and if we were listening to Jesus, and we were thinking, you seem to be saying, you seem to be implying, you seem to be taking scriptures that point to you're the one that we've been waiting for what about Rome, what about Caesar, what about his oppression, what about why we're paying taxes to him, it's actually a good question. What are you going to do about that? What about the authorities and rulers who oppress people, act unjustly and oppose you and in fact want us to worship them by paying them a coin and say Caesar is Lord? What do you have to say about them? And it's actually a question which is relevant today which is why I want us to focus on this, having talked a little bit about what's going on in the story. See, what does it mean for God's rule and kingdom to be seen today? What is the role of the church when it comes to government and when it comes to politics? See, this passage has been quoted again and again in different books and different debates. Oh, Jesus said, give to Caesar what's to Caesar and to God's what's his. And this is is how we talk about church and state. This is how we talk about politics. This is how we engage in culture. All kinds of things have been written out of this passage and other things which are said. So it's a good question. And Jesus does answer it. It's all God's. It all belongs to God. There's no divide. There's no kind of separate bit which is separate from God, where God isn't working. There's no kind of, to use language we've developed over the years in this part of the world, there's no kind of sacred and secular. What we're doing today, this morning, is ever so sacred. We're singing songs. We're gathering together, not because we're going to watch some sport or listen to some music we all like. We're only here in the room because it's for Jesus, which is right and correct. So this is more sacred. Tomorrow, when we all go to our workplaces or we're back at home or whatever it is we're doing, that's less sacred. It's rubbish. It's all God's. Wherever you are is God's. That's why when Paul talks about worship, he doesn't talk about singing songs. I think all our debates and discussions and charts as the best worship album and all of that and all the kind of conversations people have as to whether or not they'll go to an event depending on who's leading worship Paul wouldn't recognise that you say what's that hour on a Sunday morning got to do with what you do at work that's worship because all of our life belongs to God and God is working everywhere there is no place too dark too horrible too horrific where God isn't working oh yeah there's questions about what he's doing The earth is the Lord's, everything belongs to God. So there's no divide, there's nothing separate. Jesus' answer is true for us today. Even the authorities and governments are to be (coughs) honoured, even with tax. Paul makes this clear, if we can put Romans 13 up. He says a lot more than this, but this isn't where I'm going to settle, but just to see it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. That's what Paul says. Writing to Rome, church in Rome, and says this. He goes on to say, therefore pay taxes, and therefore honor them. So Paul's right in there. He's following through on what Jesus says. Why? Because it's all God's, and God's put them there. Now, sure, there's huge questions. What about injustice? What about when they do things that seem contrary to God? A mystery of hang on, if God's put them there, even news stories we see this week, and God put that oppressive tyrant ruler there that is allowing children to be raped in his country or is allowing this to happen or that to happen or lives in a huge palace while his people have nothing to eat, God put him there, yes. Doesn't mean God approves. Doesn't mean God doesn't want to see justice and righteousness come. Doesn't mean that when God, Jesus comes again, and brings all of this to an end, and judgment happens, there'll be some fierce things that happen with people who've been given authority by God and abused it. That's not where I want to go totally this morning. So those of you who are thinking, fantastic, we're going to have a real good debate on how Christians can get involved and (coughs) get involved in culture or get involved in having a voice. That's not totally where I want to go this morning. Rather, I want to see what God does and how God works in these situations. So God has put all authority in place. It all belongs to him. So if Caesar wants a tax, it's fine, back to him. Keep worshipping God, keep honouring God. In honouring Caesar, you're honouring God because God put him there. But that still leaves us with the question, how then is evil and wickedness overcome? What about injustice? What about things which can make us feel sick when we see them on our news stories? What about things, situations that some of you live in and see happening that are more personal and closer to home? Okay, God, there's no sacred, secular. Okay, God, you're in and over everything. Okay, God, authorities, including my boss on a Monday morning, who will ask me if I've hit target, and he knows very well I've not hit target, because it was a stupid target. They never should have agreed it. So once again, I'll try and explain this to him. And maybe, Andy, after this morning, I'll try and do a little bit more honour and a few less swear words. Not, Of course, anyone else would say them out loud, but they're there, let's be real. I'll try and do it a little bit more nicer. We're still left with the question, yet. but hang on, what is God, how is God working? How is God going to overcome wickedness and evil and injustice if he's over everything and even the powers he has put in place which are supposed to represent him are corrupt and sinful and evil and wicked? How are those things? How is God working? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, fine. Give to God what is God's, but it still leaves me with the question, about justice and righteousness and what is the king doing and where is the kingdom. And that's where when you look ahead in the story we get the real answer. When we see what comes a few days later when Jesus lays his life down and dies on the cross and lets Caesar, the one who's been put there by God with his authority. Okay, it's the religious rulers, also those that are supposed to represent God that want Jesus on the cross but it's Pilate that makes, lets it happen. It's under Rome's rule and authority that Jesus is nailed onto that piece of wood, having committed no crime, having done nothing wrong, having cared for the poor, healed the sick, brought teaching that people marveled at. It's under Rome's power and authority that he hangs on that cross. (coughs) See, Jesus is the king, and his kingdom is coming, but the king overcomes evil and injustice by sacrificial love and laying his life down that's how the kingdom comes that's how righteousness comes it's the climax of this story that gives us the answer to the question if everything is there from God what is God doing to overcome wickedness and injustice not just in us but institutionally and in countries or in in institutions or in places where we work it's actually what comes next that answers that question It's what Jesus does by laying his life down that tells us the answer actually runs through Scripture of how God is rescuing the world. (coughs) Jesus' death on the cross is the pinnacle of God's plan to rescue the world. And rescue happens through death. Not through the strength of armies, not through ultimately brilliant teaching, although Jesus brought teaching like no one else. Not through the sick being healed, Although that's incredibly important and a demonstration of the kingdom. But the world is rescued through death, not through the kind of victory that the world is expecting. The disciples, and maybe many in the crowd, could be thinking, Jesus, look, you're with the authorities. You've just shamed them. You've just told them this story, which we all know you're talking about them and the vineyard and how they've not done the right thing. Jesus, don't push this. We're with you, we're behind you. We can overcome the authorities. Don't turn them against you. Jesus, please back off. In the end, they will come for you, Jesus. We're with you. We're in the temple. Please do not take this too far. And sometimes the church can say things like this today. The church can think we've got to be more relevant. We've got to be more culturally acceptable. We've got to make it easier for people to like Jesus. We've got to make our message more palatable. We've got to take down some of the barriers, remove some of the offense already, um, politicians don't want religion talked about and one gets elected, a Christian gets elected to lead his party and the media go lay into him about his faith. Come on, let's make this a bit more palatable. Let's just calm it down a bit. Let's make church more accessible. Surely we'll win that way. If we can get more popular, if we can make sure the authorities like us or the crowds like us, surely if we can calm this down, tone it down or be culturally more relevant, we will win. But we need to understand Such is the nature of wickedness and evil in the world and in people's hearts that a more radical and, in fact, more shocking solution is needed. The disciples could have been thinking, Jesus, please, don't push the authorities. Let's back off. We today can be thinking, come on, let's give a different message here. Let's convey something more than the fact that there is wickedness in the world and Jesus needs to rescue us. Let's talk lots more about love. Let's talk lots more about being accepting. Let's talk a lot more about being more embracing. And everyone is welcome. Of course, the church has part of all kinds of barriers we shouldn't have done. At times, speak a language which no one understands, or try and answer questions which no one is asking. Of course, all of those things need looking at. But in the end, the message, in the end, the heart of what we need to go to (coughs) is shocking and is not going to be liked by people a more radical and shocking solution is needed. And often we understand this or comprehend what happens with Jesus in terms of our own salvation. We get what Jesus had to die for us. Jesus had to die in order that we could live. And we apply it personally, which of course is true. But actually we need to understand it in the context of the question which is being asked in this passage. Yes, of course it's personal. Yes, of course Jesus died for you. But actually... Pharisees, religious rulers asking what about Caesar, Jesus died for that too. Jesus died for the corrupt power, all the unrighteousness, all the injustice, all the evil and all the wickedness. The only way that could be overcome, institutional injustice could be overcome. The wickedness that tra- that's around the world, the only way that could be overcome was through death. So we need to understand this in the context of where we live and where we work. We need to understand it in the context of our city and our news stories. Jesus' death and resurrection is the historical, cosmic, world-changing point of history. Everything changes at that point. But the theme of God's purpose being worked out through weakness and death runs through the whole story of the Bible. From the moment that we turn our back on God, the story of God overcoming evil and wickedness through death and through suffering and through pain runs through the Bible this is the real revolution. What Jesus is doing in the temple courts is revolutionary. What he's about to do is the real revolution. There's no one more powerful. There's no one who can speak to the crowds and hold them like Jesus can. There's no one more powerful. who can open the eyes of blind people, totally spoils funerals by turning up and telling dead people to wake up. And if it's been three days, he goes to their tomb and says to Lazarus, time to come out now, Lazarus. you ever thought how funny that was? If you're in the crowd, you wouldn't be standing there waiting and thinking, is it going to happen? You'd think, Jesus is dead. You don't want him coming out. He's going to smell. Not even sure he'll still be holding together in one piece. There's no one more powerful than Jesus. He could have sorted Caesar out. He could have overcome Rome. He could solve what's happening in the Middle East right now. He could move in a moment. The Proverbs talk about, and, and the prophets talk about how God... Raises a nation in a day and puts a nation down. How his power is greater than all the biggest of mountains. God could act now. God could act now into your situation where you're working and where you're living. The things you cry out to God for and say, God, what are you doing? I'm trying to trust you here, trying to think you're in control, trying to get the fact that you've not just left me and even though there's wickedness and evil going on, you're still over that. But God, please, yeah, God could change it right now. But the real revolution is that often God does not use that power just as Jesus didn't. But God rescues the world by entering right into the wickedness and evil and suffers with it. And through that suffering and death defeats its power and brings righteousness and justice. (coughs) Let me put Hebrews 11 up. So I'm normally get to preach three times. I've got once this morning, but I'm going to take the full time, so that's three times 40 minutes, so we're still on the introductory comments. <laughs> Hebrews 11, the writer is saying to people, saying, how do we live? People still facing persecution, still, still, still thinking. Hebrews are probably from a Jewish background, still got the promises. When's the kingdom coming? And he's remind, the author's reminding them about how to live. <coughs> Lists a whole load of people, then says this, through faith, These people conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight, women received back their dead by resurrection. That's a great paragraph. We like some of that. There's fighting. There's victory. There's weak people being strong. There's armies being overcome. There's promises being obtained. Even the mouths of lions are told to be shut up and not by a dentist in America, Just came to me. (laughs) Didn't think of it in the preparation, just saw it just now. Sorry, everybody. And so we love some of this stuff. But the writer goes on. And these are some of the people who he doesn't name. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may rise to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. I love this line. Of whom the world was not worthy. The world is laughing. The world is mocking. The world is imprisoning and putting chains. People are wandering around in deserts. They've left homes. They don't know where they're going to eat because of their passion of following God. Because they're saying there's another way. God has spoken and we're going to follow it. But they weren't the ones as held up as being ever so wise. They weren't the ones that the world was looking to to solve the problems. They had to run. They had to flee. And the world was not worthy. The author is saying this is what faith in God's rule, in God's reign, this is what it looks like to follow that day by day. Now live the same. (coughs) See, the church can get so confused with all of this. We can feel sidelined, irrelevant, disillusioned. Are we really making any difference For all our praying, for all our passion, for all our prophecies of what God's going to do and prophecies of another wave coming or revival or whatever else. For all our talk of understanding our culture and if we get things right we can see big churches. We can look at what's happening in London and see churches of thousands think, yeah, God's going to do this in all kinds of places if we can just get it right. And we want to avoid rejection. We want to avoid persecution, we want to avoid affliction and we can see it as bad and it's not the way to go and it's not the way that the world is going to embrace us and we can end up putting our confidence in the wrong things but the gospel story demonstrates that God's victory in the world isn't brought about through numbers and stadiums being filled up or persuasive arguments or clever media campaigns or political power or clever strategies. The victory over wickedness, evil, and injustice is won through love, love that lays its life down, love that suffers, love that, in the middle of suffering and pain, says, "Well, I will lay my life down in order that this can be different." That's the gospel's way. That's what this story is teaching us. In the context of, "Well, what about Caesar? What we'll give to him? What's his?" Yeah, but he's oppressing us. What's God doing? Well, they didn't get the answer that day. They got it a few days later. Paul writes about this again and again, talks about suffering, how glory will be revealed through suffering. Talks for himself about how even in death he will identify with Christ and know the Messiah through his pain, through his suffering. (coughs) So with that being the backdrop, that being the big picture of what's going on, how then are we to live? Well, interestingly... In Matthew's account of this, so Matthew is telling the same story, and as we saw the other week, draws out slightly different things. Right after this exchange with the the religious rulers, another, they send someone else. So they're caught out. They then send a lawyer this time. They send, they send someone else to Jesus to then ask, how do we then live? If we give to Caesar, what is Caesar's, and to God's, what is God's? How do we live? What about the law? So we can put that passage up from Matthew 22. When the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? He said to them, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second one's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. So here's how it's playing out. Jesus, what about Caesar? Pay him tax? What do, what do we give to him? What, what do we do with God? What to do, do about all this injustice? Well, give to God what God's, give to Caesar what Caesar's. Ah, how are we going to catch him out? Well, if that's what we've got to do then, can imagine them debating. If, if he's saying that Caesar can still be there, what about the law? What about how God wants us to live? What about everything that's happened before? What about everything he told Moses? What about everything the prophets came and told us? Let's ask him then, how do we live? Because we can hear the thing of about law and just think, "Oh, it's just something to do." Just just a particular thing that religious people do. No, that's not the law. The law was how you live under God's rule. The law was how do you give honor to God? What does it mean to be people that live different? So they send someone to him and say, come on then, what's the greatest law? So if Caesar is staying in place, and we're still paying taxes to him, and God's still in charge of everything, and we know that, and we thought we'd try and catch you out, but you've just told us it again, everything belongs to God. How do we live? And Jesus says this, love God. Love him with everything you've got. With everything you are, love him. The whole law and prophets, Jesus says, everything that's gone on in the story is summed up like this love him. What does that look like? A few days later, Jesus shows them what it looks like. What about the people around us? Love them like they're your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? They ask him on another day, which is your enemy. So people who aren't like you. So even those who are pressing you, even those you don't like, even those who seem to be the ones that are rejecting you, seem to be the ones that want you silenced, love them. This is God's way. This is how wickedness and evil is overcome. How do, you live, how do you live to see God's kingdom where you're working? Love. Now obviously there's a hundred things we could say about what that looks like. <clears throat> but I just want to put it up there in terms of this is Jesus' answer to where you live, where you work. When you're saying where is righteousness, what is God doing, how does he want me to live? Should we be involved in politics? Yeah, of course we should. Should we be campaigning for righteous laws? Yes, of course we should. Because we want to see righteousness come. Should we be getting into advocacy and talking up for people that haven't got a voice and have been silenced by our culture or in other cultures in a way? Yes, of course we should. Should we be trying to campaign against human trafficking? Absolutely. Should we be getting involved in communities around us where we live and work and trying to make a difference? Yes. Because that's an outworking of love. Not political might or political power or how the world works, and trying to think, well, we'll join the world then, and do it the way the world does it. We'll never do it the way the world does it. The world is broken, wicked, totally affected by evil. And where the church gets confused is when we put our hope in those things, and what the world likes, and what impresses the world. We will never impress the world. If Jesus didn't go that way, Jesus didn't do huge stadiums. Even the feeding of the 5,000, which was probably nearer 20,000 plus, was in a remote place. And even then they came for him. Even then they killed him. We shouldn't be chasing after stadiums and big media and all of those things. It doesn't matter if they happen. I mean, goodness, some of you this week, you're going to head off to New Day. 6,000 people in a tent. Every day, buses going into the city to say, hey, we follow Jesus. But what do you do? We want to love you by doing this in your community. So of course when the church comes together, yeah, the world may notice that. Although we've been running New Day for 11, 12 years now. The world isn't particularly noticing. We should still run it, by the way. Still fantastic. But you see my point? What our hope is in, how we're to live, is in sacrificial love. N.T. Wright, Uh, New Testament scholar, he says this on kind of writing on these kind of things and talking about politics and everything else. He's a bright chap. Normally you need a dictionary to read half of his books. The call of the gospel is for the church to implement the victory of God in the world through suffering love. That's how we live. God won a victory. God showed what power looked like in raising Jesus back to life, never to die again. That had never happened before. So there is a victory, there is something we have to say, there is something which is powerful but it's a different power from the world. But how do we demonstrate that? We demonstrate that through suffering love. Listen as we head into the finish now, every time we forgive someone, every time we offer kindness, every time we don't respond to hurt with anger or bitterness, you are overcoming evil. That's what this looks like. Every t- time someone slags you off at work and you gonna turn around and tell them what you think, but hold your tongue and say, no, I'm going to live differently now. I'm going to choose to let go. I'm going to choose to forgive. We think, what is that? No one's going to, my boss isn't going to call me in the next day and say, well, we just love your attitude in this office. So here's a thousand pound bonus for this month. You're just such a little sweetie. We love that. We love the fact that you don't join in all the rude jokes and you don't slag me off. Here's more money. No, that's never going to happen. But I'll tell you what does happen. Love is demonstrated and evil is overcome. Every time you forgive. Every time you speak kindness. Every time you see someone on the edge and you try to include them. Every time you offer someone who seems lonely help or kindness or encouragement. Every time you do that, Jesus' death and resurrection is lived out. Because evil does the opposite. Evil says, you spoke like that, you deserve this. Evil says, you judge me like that, well, I'm going to judge you. Evil says, you speak like that, well, I can speak even worse. That's what evil does. And the reason why Jesus' death broke that, because he said, okay, evil, I'm going to lay my life down. And God raised him to life. And when you live like that, God will bring life to you. He'll bring life to your classroom. He'll bring life to your work. He'll bring life to your community because in the end, that's what faith is. I'll live different. I'll lay my life down. I'll hold my tongue. I'll give extra time. I'll care for that person. I'll hang out with them even though nobody else is, and I'll trust Jesus that your light will shine in the darkness. I'll trust that instead of bitterness, hurt, and anger, love, and healing, and wholeness will come, because that's what he does. He's the healer. He's the one that brings freedom. He's the one that brings liberty. If that was someone timing me, you're right. I should have finished at that point. Thank you. (laughs) They did that. I've got one, but I switched it off because I thought I'm not going to finish on time. And the evil and wickedness is overcome when we live like that. So let's apply this. What does this mean? It means don't despise small things. That's why Jesus told so many stories about the kingdom being like seeds. The Pharisees, religious rulers, and the people were looking for something big and splendid and amazing, and chariots and armies. She said, now here's the kingdom. It's like a seed. It's tiny. In fact, he even said sometimes, it's like the mustard seed. You can't get a smaller one. You being kind, you forgiving, you loving people that no one else does. you doing a good job just because that's what you do, even though your boss won't notice and someone else will get promoted. That's the kingdom. That's the seed. That's living different. Don't despise small things. Have faith in God's way and what God is doing. Don't keep looking for the big. There are so many books over the last decade about how you and I can change the world, how you and I can be significant, how there are promises for us to obtain and take hold of because God's got a destiny for you. It's rubbish. Most of us won't. We're not gifted enough or able enough to hold court in front of thousands of people or able to do brilliant things everyone's going to admire. I can meet so many people, and some of you are here, who just think, My life counts for nothing because I'm not changing the world. Who am I? What's my identity? What's God got for me? I'm supposed to be making a huge difference. Drop it. Leave it. You're not. Be free in the name of Jesus and plant seeds. And plant seeds and plant seeds, and plant seeds, and plant seeds, and plant seeds, and love, and forgive, and care, and give to people, and make fun calls to encourage, and get people around from your road that no one else has around, and feed them, and plant seeds, and plant seeds, and plant seeds, and plant seeds, and Jesus will be glorified, because he's the great one, he's the one that will have all worship, not you, not me, forget fulfilling your destiny, which forgive me, that's a phrase from about 10 years ago, but we've reinvented it and called it different things now. Forget being a world changer, a cultural impactor. Forget it. In terms of how that language is normally meant and take hold of it in God's way. Because of course you're meant to make a difference. Of course your life is meant to impact. Of course you're destined for fruitfulness. But it's seeds. Seeds, seeds, seeds. And then a harvest comes. And he is Lord of the harvest, not you. Don't despise the small things. Do we speak and campaign on issues of injustice? Yes. Do we pray and support for people in influence in the media, business, health, government? Yes. Do we pray for God to raise more up? Yes. But our confidence in faith is in God's way, in sacrificial love, and we can all live like that. Whether it's politics, media, the classroom, or a parent, we all get to live that way. We all get to play our part. That's why you're here. You all get to play your part not just those of us with big mouths and a microphone, not just those who have certain talents that put them in public places, but every single one of us get to play our part. Don't stop telling the story, this story. God has overcome evil. God has overcome wickedness. Your life is a testimony to that. You have a story to tell. There's nothing more... what the enemy would want to do right now to silence the church and to silence you and to get you feeling you have nothing to say you can't answer the big questions you can't answer all the things that the world objects to you have a story tell your story tell the story of Jesus stuff whether or not you can answer everybody's questions because you don't have to some people can we've got people here sitting here who are far cleverer and more intellectual than I can I listen to them have a debate and think I never even thought of that I wish I thought of that one wish I knew how to answer that Well, thank God for them, but you tell your story. Don't let the world silence you. I had a brilliant quote, but we're out of time. I have to leave that. Know that in the middle of suffering, (laughs) evil is overcome as we follow Jesus and worship him and give testimony to his love. In the middle of suffering. So for those of you now who know you're experiencing difficulty, who know you're experiencing a situation you'd love to get out of, well, it could be that's the very time when well, you love Jesus and when you keep worshipping him, yeah, still pray, God, I'd like you to change this or I'd like you to rescue me, but don't make that the sole focus Whereas say, God, what resurrection's going to come through this? How's your power going to be displayed through this? How can I turn the evil and the wickedness that I'm on the receiving end of, either in my family or in my workplace or in this situation or in this broken relationship, how can love overcome this evil? Because so often we take on the language of the world and we say, this isn't fair. My rights in God should mean I should be blessed. My rights in God should mean there should be promises that should be fulfilled right now. No, there is suffering, and in the suffering you can know the power and presence of Jesus. And when you love and you worship and you respond in that way, the evil is overcome. Not always by Jesus taking it away from you. So for those in the middle of situations, may faith and strength and courage come to you this morning to know that you're not simply on the receiving end. There's an opportunity through the power of the Holy Spirit for you to see transformation come, not by being more powerful or courageous or stronger, but by simply trusting him and laying your life down. And finally understand that everything we do here is a demonstration that God has overcome evil. All our fellowship, all our worship, all our listening to the word like we've done this morning, all our meeting with one another and prayer and our support and encouragement of one another, this is the demonstration that Jesus has overcome evil. This is the demonstration that God is working. The fact that we love, the fact that we care. Do not, do not ever, ever, ever think this is rubbish. Do not ever, ever think this does nothing. It's easy to think that. It's easy in a world which tells us that the church should shut up and it's just a private thing and we've got nothing to say and nothing to do and we should just be more embracing and all of this stuff and we can end up feeling does this mean anything? Is this worth it? Is the time meeting here and those of you involved in ministry and leading life groups and kids' works and, and those of you who got here at 7 o'clock this morning, thank you so much, and set everything up. Is this worth it? And those of you who turn up to practice and lead worship, does Birmingham even care? No, probably not. I don't do it for Birmingham for them to care. I do it because Jesus has overcome wickedness and evil. And I want to celebrate that. And I want to live that out with brothers and sisters, that's what the church is. I need to do it out there. I need to love and forgive there. But if I do it here, and I build community here because of who Jesus is, Ephesians 3, Paul says the principalities and powers see the multicolored wisdom of God through the church. The evil principalities and powers, the authorities, those that are behind a Caesar or an oppressive ruler today, look at the church and see God's glory.